Good evening, everyone. One day, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, um, was hanging out with the other monastics. And it was in the assembly hall in Jetta Grove. Jetta Grove was a, a place that had been donated by uh, one of the Buddha's uh, biggest benefactors, Anatta Pindaka. And they had just gone for alms round and had finished their meal. And Ananda began to speak to them about all these wonderful and marvelous qualities that the Buddha had. And just after he began, I think the, the Buddha got wind of this somehow. You know how Buddhas are. And he decided to come into the assembly hall and sit down. And, and then he asked Ananda to please continue about what he was saying about all the wonderful and marvelous qualities of the Buddha. And Ananda did. And he was telling all these kind of amazing supernatural qualities of the Buddha, such as he mentioned that when the Buddha entered the womb of his mother, this this great immeasurable light shone throughout the world. And not only that, the world shook and quaked. And then while he was in the womb of his mother, four young deities were always guarding him. And Ananda continued. He said, when the Buddha was born, it was, it was as if these jets of water, not as if, actually these jets of water coming from the sky bathed him and his mother while he was born. So after Ananda keeps on talking about these wonderful and marvelous qualities, the Buddha at the end says to Ananda, he says, that being so, Ananda, but, but remember this too, this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata, of the Buddha. Here, Ananda, for the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, and as they disappear. Ananda, Remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. In this situation, I feel, first of all, I feel like the Buddha's being kind of gentle with Ananda and really pointing out to him, yeah, there might be supernatural qualities of the Buddha, but the the important quality of a Buddha is this ability to see the arising and passing away of experience, the arising and passing away of a thought or an emotion or a sound like the sound of my voice, the way it comes and it goes. Why is it so wonderful and marvelous? Because it's the thing that brings us to awakening, that leads us to our liberation. I think this has been repeated again and again and again, and I'm going to repeat it one more time. <laughs> Have you noticed, really, when it, when it comes down to it, this practice is so simple and so profound. It's simply being aware of what's happening and also being aware of what happens to it, how it unfolds. And through this, the, the mind begins to awaken. And tonight, I'd like to share with you some reflections about kind of the second quality, that there's this, this awareness, awareness of experience, but also 
the, the importance of the sensitivity that's needed of how practice, of how experience unfolds, of how it's impermanent, how it's constantly changing. Which on a deeper level is this insight into impermanence. It's, it's this arising of wisdom. And I think most of you know impermanence is, is one of these three fundamental characteristics that the Buddha talks about in terms of, of reality. That it's impermanent. The Pali word is anicca, which is really just the negative form of the Pali word nicha. Nicha is usually constant, uh, is translated as constant or permanent. So anicca is impermanence or inconstancy. And then dukkha which Carol, of course, uh, uh, spoke at length about last night, which is that unsatisfactoriness, that not-quite-rightness, suffering. And then the third characteristic is anatta, or that non-self quality. Impermanence is, is important. It's really important that the mind becomes sensitive to, to seeing this. For example... You might recall the last words of the Buddha to to the monastics, to the practitioners. He says, Oh, bhikkhus, this is my last admonition to you. And in Pali, what it said is, is, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Apamadena Sambadeta, which literally means all formations, all formations are impermanent, they're subject to change. Please strive on with diligence. And and I feel like this makes sense that the Buddha was emphasizing this in his last admonition. Because if if you really think about it, if you really look at the stress and discontent and suffering in your life, have you realized that it's so much centered around how we relate to impermanence? The mind's relationship to the world being impermanent. And it's our inability to truly understand this, to, to understand this kind of in our bones, that that's the reason why there's so much stress and suffering. It's like we're fighting with impermanence. As Guy mentioned in his talk, that, that samsara is this trying to correct, trying to correct the world of impermanence. And he mentioned those three strategies that I'm sure you've noticed arise on this retreat. The strategy strategy of grasping, of craving, or of pushing away aversion, or or of checking out delusion. So let me give some examples of this, just so we're we're clear about this fight with impermanence and and how we can intellectually get it, but it's not like we're, we're embodying this realization. I think the, the best example I can give of this is um, around a car I bought. There's a car that I bought right after uh, I was in the Zen monastery. When I was at the Zen monastery, it was a great life. It really deepens my spiritual life. It was really not so good for my financial life. <laughs> so I came out of there with not a lot of money. And when I got out of there, of course, um, after living a while in southern New Mexico, I needed a car. And luckily for me, a friend of mine was selling their car to me for 350 bucks. It was such a great deal. It was a, I don't know if you know these Daihatsu cars. I don't think they're made anymore. 
but they had three cylinders, a three-cylinder engine in it. And I just want you to really imagine, if I bought it for 300 bucks, what kind of condition it was in. <laughs> it was actually pretty rusty. I got this, this can of primer paint just to, to paint over the, um, uh, uh, the rusty parts. And so, I mean, it functioned, but I bought it for 350 bucks. And it was amazing what happened. So the first thing that, that of course, broke was the, uh, it had electric windows, unfortunately, and, and the electric window on the passenger side broke. And when it broke, I was so upset. And it was such a crazy thing. If you were to take a look at this car, you would think, why are you upset that the window broke? How could it have not have broken? Of course, I spent a lot of time rewiring it, and I, and I want to let you know I don't know anything about el the electricity, so I kind of wired it to the, the, the battery itself because I couldn't figure out the, um, how to do it elsewhere, but it actually worked quite well. And then the, uh, <laughs> and then the, and then the window on the, on the driver's side broke, and then it was the radio, and then, and then the air conditioning. And each time I noticed, I was getting upset. Why was, why was the mind getting upset? Because I knew about impermanence, but I hadn't fully embodied it. I still had this idea that this was a car that was not supposed to break down. I'd spent 350 bucks on it. Of course it wasn't supposed to break down. There was this fight. The mind was fighting with impermanence. And it was not only that, it was because it was my car. I was upset because there was this other fixation on it, mine. If your car were to break, I would feel for you. But I actually wouldn't be that upset. I might feel for you. Maybe I'd talk to you about impermanence and how you need to let go. <laughs> but it's not my car. It's a little more difficult when it enters the realm of mine. And have you seen this? I'm sure you've seen this on the retreat here, how your mind fights with impermanence. Something changes. You noticed one day the mind is a little more tranquil and it's concentrated. And then the next day it's a whole different world and you're bummed out. There's this fight with impermanence as if there's this belief that that should continue. Or wanting impermanence on your terms. I'm okay with being with this pain or this emotion as long as it really starts to manifest this quality of impermanence right now. <laughs> you ever notice that? Or sometimes it's around time. I think the, be the best example of this is when um, I was working at a drug rehabilitation center. is the place I started to teach meditation. And please remember the, the people I was teaching meditation to, they were in early recovery. And any of you who've gone through recovery know that early recovery is hell. It's really difficult. The mind is extremely agitated. And I would go in every morning and we would uh, sit together. We'd be doing a sitting meditation together. A little mindful movement and then some meditation. Often we'd only sit for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And so I began the uh, sitting meditation and it was silent. And we were meditating, and then in the middle of the sit, I hear this voice say, ring the damn bell. (laughs) 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 
You ever have that thought go through your mind? <laughs> this person was fully embodying it. That fight with impermanence. We wanted our own terms. The Zen master I practiced with, I think, put it very poetically. He would sit up during his Dharma talk and he'd say, I'm, I'm, here I am, I'm up here and I'm trying to sell round trip tickets to heaven and hell and none of you want to buy them. What's up with that? What is he trying to say? We don't want to take the ride of allowing pleasant and unpleasant experience to, completely, to, to just simply unfold and to skillfully respond to them. We want to get lost in fighting. We want the one-way ticket to heaven. Or we want to feel bad about ourselves and have the one-way ticket to hell. It's different to really be open to taking that round trip, the round trip ticket to heaven and hell, on the terms of the way reality unfolds. So this is what it really comes down to. Can we buy that round trip ticket? And I want to point out that on a deeper level, in terms of the big challenges in your lives, have you, have you noticed how they center around some fight with impermanence? Like right now, if you can just take a moment to reflect on some of the most difficult times in your life. What was going on during those times? You might notice that, that within those difficult times, when we reflect on it right now, it might have usually been through loss, that there was some loss going on. A loss of a loved one, or the loss of your health, or some ability that you used to have and no longer have. Or the loss of a job, or a partner, or a lover. Or it could have been the loss of safety, or the loss of kind, a kind, caring quality that you were receiving from someone or the loss of connection. I, I just want to point out that living in this impermanent world can be really difficult at times. It's challenging. And hopefully what we begin to realize through this practice is it's because of the way the mind relates to this impermanent world. But can you see that, that through the fight with impermanence, that's, that's so many times where our biggest difficulties arise. And hopefully through this practice we get to see it's also because of how the mind relates to it. As guy, again, as Guy was trying to say, uh, was mentioning, this, this trying to correct through these three strategies. One of the things the Buddha recommended around impermanence, it's not emphasized on this retreat, but I do want to mention it, was actually... Uh, uh, having a daily reflect, reflection around impermanence. I remember right after I got married, my wife and I, I know this is going to sound a little bit strange, it's not the hottest and sexiest thing to do, but we decided um, that we were going to do this reflection every day together. We'd sit together and reflect on basically how eventually our marriage would completely disintegrate as a result of either estrangement of going apart or death. 
I know it's not the most exciting thing to do with, <laughs> on a honeymoon, but it was. It was a, it was a wonderful um, reflection to, to engage in, especially together, to, to really begin to see the attachment and to feel our ways through that, that attachment so that, so that there could be a, a beginning of a different kind of intimacy to arise. But we needed to really reflect upon and, and realize this quality of impermanence that was inherent in our bond. There's a beautiful poem about this by uh, uh, Jane Kenyon. It's, the title of it is, is Otherwise. And she wrote this, I think, at a young age. She died at 47, and she was uh, suffering from leukemia. Leukemia is a, a type of cancer. And so just to keep in mind, she wrote this uh, during the last year of her life. And if you know anything about leukemia, often it's a very slow dying process. It was written uh, right before her death during the last of your, year of her life. She begins, I got, a, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. Right? Something different comes. Something different comes in the way we relate to even the small things in life when we realize, as she says, that one day it will be otherwise. Yeah, what I really want to share with you this evening is, is more about what I'd call the direct experience of impermanence, not just the reflection of it, because... I really feel that this is, this is uh, where our practice truly unfolds. This is what definitely leads to, to awakening, to our liberation. It's actually the thing that I'm excited about talking about. Because it's that direct experience that can really free the heart. So not just reflecting on it in permanence, but seeing it moment after moment after moment. So that a, a, a new relationship can arise to our experience. And so I want to talk about the details of that and, and a little bit more of this. Because when the mind begins to see impermanence in this practice that you're doing every day here, when it really begins to get a, a feeling sense of it, this is when the insight, an insight, the insight into impermanence arises. So first I want to talk a little bit about this word insight and how I'll be using it tonight. This word can be used in, in many different ways, of course, it can be used in a psychological way. For example, even on this retreat, you might be sitting on this retreat and as a result of sitting, a psychological insight about your personal life arises. But this insight I'm talking about has a different flavor. It's, it's basically the spiritual insight that arises from the mind cl- clearly seeing these three characteristics, 
these three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And in order to get a sense of this, I want to give a little bit of an analogy of what this, what this insight is like. Insight or insight into impermanence, this wisdom or knowledge, it's like the knowledge of riding a bike. So this is important. So if you know how to ride a bike, or you'd even say even if you know how to swim, it's not an intellectual understanding, right? Like, for example, if someone were to ask you to explain to them, how do you ride a bike? How do you stay on a bike? It's interesting because I think it would be pretty difficult to explain that. It'd be kind of, you'd have to sit down, you'd have to kind of think about how would you explain how to stay on a bike? But you know, right? It's very clear. You get on a bike and there's that knowing. There might not be the words for it, but there's the knowing of how to ride a bike. So it's not, it's not an intellectual knowing, it's a bodily knowing. This is more what insight is like. It's not so much that I know what, what impermanence is. Just for example, with my car, I knew, I'd read tons about impermanence, but impermanence hadn't been embodied. I wasn't riding the bike of impermanence. So insight, it's, it's like this kind of wisdom, something that you know in your bones and in your body, the way you know how to ride a bike. And also, another thing to, to remember is, if you can think back, I know many of us learned how to ride a bike when we were younger, but sometimes when we learn how to ride a bike, sometimes that experience, at times, when we're really riding it, at first, sometimes it can be a real wow experience, a dramatic kind of experience of like, wow, I know how to ride a bike now, and I notice the difference, and it's amazing. Yet at the same time, sometimes when we even refine our ability to ride the bike or in the midst of riding the bike, the body is learning how to be more skillful in riding the bike. It's gaining knowledge, but it's not really intellectually aware that it's happening. The body's getting it, but it's not a wow experience. So this is very important for the insight. For example, the insight into impermanence. Sometimes when people are on retreat, they have kind of wow experiences. Wow. At other times, the body is learning, it's gaining wisdom about insight, and there's no intellectual knowing of that. It's important to remember. So sometimes it's ordinary, sometimes it's wow. And just so you know, you don't get to choose. (laughs) Bummer, huh? So again, insight, it's it's like riding a bike. It's this bodily knowing, and it can be dramatic, and often it's not dramatic. Most important when I'm talking about insight, please remember um, that, uh, please don't follow the path of asking, is this insight or is it not? Actually, insight, the arising of insight is not your job. That's the job of wisdom. Our job is to simply practice, to do the practice, and then insight or wisdom arises when it arises. So that's out of the job description of yogis, just so you know. So please keep it out of the, 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 the job description. And, and to know that the practice naturally unfolds. The Buddha speaks about this. This is, um, I want to share with you a pa- passage from the Upanisa Sutta. This is a, um, a, a sutta that I um, quoted in my last talk, the Discourse on Supporting Conditions. He says, Just as when the gods pour rain and heavy pour rain in heavy drops and crash thunder on the upper mountains. The water flowing down along the slopes fills the mountain clefts and rifts 
and gullies. When the mountain cliffs and rifts and gullies are full, they fill the little ponds. When the little ponds are full, they fill the big lakes. When the big lakes are full, they fill the little rivers. And when the little rivers are full, they fill the big rivers. And when the big rivers are full, they fill the great ocean. In the same way, and I'm paraphrasing here, this is the way the practice unfolds. So we practice, there's this quality of awareness and the sensitivity to impermanence. So I'll I'll speak a little bit more in detail about in just a minute. And through that, the practice will unfold. It will lead to the great ocean of awakening. That's all we need to do. And And then wisdom unfolds on its own. It does its job when we do our job of the practice. So I want to mention some things about what helps allow the mind to be sensitive to impermanence. So so I want to divide up what we're doing just into two different aspects. There's so many different ways of dividing up, and I want to divide it up so so that I can explain this a little more clearly. When we we engage in in this practice, there's this this quality of awareness that we're beginning to to cultivate. As as so many of the teachers have talked about, awareness infused with this intelligence and this kindness. As well as, as this sensitivity to not only to awareness of experience, but how experience changes, how it unfolds, how it arises and passes away, or how, it alter, uh, how there's some kind of alteration within it. A, a simple way of putting it in terms of the second part, there's the awareness, is the sensitivity to impermanence, is having this quality of mind of this curiosity of what happens next. So it's not only, oh, thinking, what happens next? Oh, and then it disappears. Oh, there's a pain. There's a pain in my knee. Oh, okay. So there's pain. There's the, there's the experience of pain. Oh, then it increases, and then it decreases, and then it spreads, and then it contracts. So there's a quality of alteration. Or a, a, a state of mind. Oh, aversion. Oh, oh, it, it actually increases, and then it decreases, and it increases. Or maybe it comes and goes very, very quickly. So it's noticing what happens next, just a sensitivity to it. There's a wonderful poem by the uh, poet Ted Kuser that I feel really elucidates this quality, this quality of mind that we want. Uh, Ted Kuser was one of the poet laureates about six or seven years ago. Uh, The name of the poem is A Happy Birthday. He begins, This evening I sat by an open window and read till the light was gone and the book was no more than a part of the darkness. I could easily have switched on a lamp, but I wanted to ride this day down into night and to sit alone and smooth the unreadable page with the pale gray ghost of my hand. Do you hear the simple event that he's describing here? So here he is. He's sitting in the evening by an open window and he's reading and and it's evening, right? And the light is going. And he has a choice. He could have easily switched on a lamp, but instead 
He's, he's with the disappearance, the disappearance of reading. So we can really see this, this unfolding of arising and passing away. And what I appreciate about this poem is that, that I think it really speaks to what we usually do with our experiences. An experience happens, and then we move on to another experience by turning on the light. We see one experience and then go to another experience, but we don't see how the experience unfolds. The best example of this is watch television. It's the, I think, okay, I'm getting my opinion here. I think it's one of the worst things for our meditation because what it is is it, it flashes an experience at us and it, rather than seeing the arising of that frame and the passing away of it, then there's another flashing of it so that the mind stays interested. So we no longer get to see the unfolding of experience. We get flashes of exciting experience to keep the mind interested. It's not so good for the insight into impermanence. So in our mind can get habituated that way where we just see things but we're not seeing how it unfolds. Actually, so one small caveat about this because I think it's fascinating. So I do this work uh, with trauma called somatic experiencing or usually around psychological trauma. And it's, it's really incredible. I, I, I know this when I'm working with clients and also when I'm uh, assisting trying to teach other people how to do this. The one essential skill that's so helpful in navigating issues of trauma is this ability to notice how things change. So a lot of times when I work with people, I'll ask them again and again, so what are you noticing? And then they'll report what they're noticing. And then I'll have them pay attention to it and I'll ask them, I say this so often, can you notice if it's increasing or decreasing or changing in some way? Or ask the question, now if you could pay attention to that and then notice what happens next. So it's priming, priming to see how experience unfolds. Because a lot of times the mind gets stuck it's like there's a feeling of fear and then the mind all, all, all of a sudden feels like, uh-oh, this is going to be around forever and it's going to ruin my life. You ever have that thought? It's actually just another mind state that's arising and passing away. So what will help with this, with this sensitivity? I, I, what I remember is a, a quote from... Uh, the musical composer, John Cage. Do you guys know who John Cage was, the, the, the radical avant-garde musician? He said, he said, I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I'm doing. This, this can be wonderful to remember, especially in the middle of a retreat when the mind starts to become familiar with experience. Can you remain unfamiliar with what you're doing moment after moment after moment? When the mind is unfamiliar with experience, it's sensitive, it's aware, and it can notice how it's unfolding. The other thing to remember is, is something that I remember hearing in an interview with Saida Upandita. I remember going to an interview with him. And before the interview, I was thinking... Now, this is a good report. This is a really good report. <laughs> I really nailed it this time. So I went in there. I was feeling pretty good about my report. And I really went over the details. And he said, 
only one thing to me. He said, don't look for something. It was some of the best advice I had gotten in my practice. I noticed that I was looking for something. And as a result of looking for something, I was missing what was arising and passing away in the moment. So it's important to have this, this, sense, this, this quality of a sensitivity to how things arise and pass away or how they change, but not looking for it. So in this relaxed manner of, of just allowing the mind to soak that in. You know, the mind can be, be noticing an experience just for a, a fraction of a, a second, and it can be sensitive to how it arises and passes away. For example, a quick sound or a quick sensation. Or it could be with something for a long duration, like a pain, and noticing how it's changing. It's the sensitivity to it rather than the looking for it. And it really is this simple. When, when the mind sees impermanence again and again and again, it begins to dismantle our, our habitual ways of relating to the world. It begins to deconstruct this false world that we create again and again and again, simply by seeing these, the, the, what's going on moment after moment after moment. Paul Cezanne, the French Impressionistic painter, he said, the day is coming when a single carrot, freshly observed, will set off a revolution. I actually feel that what you're doing here on this retreat sets off a revolution with this fresh quality of observing. And I actually don't mean that lightly. I mean a true revolution. A revolution where the mind begins to get liberated. Also, when, when you're engaging in this practice, the simple practice of aware, being aware of the experience and how it unfolds, when you remain receptive to impermanence, I feel like it changes the world that we live in, the world that you live in. Because when that happens, it's as if then when we're practicing, in those moments of practicing, then everything is supporting us to awaken. Every, every, everything is giving us this teaching of impermanence. There's a Chinese poet by the name of Su Tung Po who I feel put this really beautifully, this realization that when one is practicing, everything is calling us to awakening. He says, the sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. In this night, I heard the myriad sutras uttered. How can I relate to others what they say? So when you remain receptive to impermanence, it's as if the Buddha himself is teaching moment after moment. The Buddha is teaching moment after moment through this this revealing of impermanence. Can you remain open to that? I actually want to uh, spend a little time of, of just telling a few stories of what it looks like when, 
we begin to ride the bike of impermanence, when, when we begin to really get in our bones and in our body this insight into impermanence. And sometimes I like to tell stories of kind of the old great practitioners, such as Ajahn Moon or the Venerable Ajahn Chah. But at other times, I rather share with you stories about practitioners that are just like you and me. Practitioners that come on retreat and then come back into their daily life and then might go back on retreat, but they're not monastics. They're just like us. So it's not the big grand stories, just the small ones, but I think they're significant. And I think they elucidate something important. This is the first story. Uh, uh, there's a practitioner I've been working with for a few years, and what was it? I think it was two years ago, she was living in a city, which most, most of you know, the, the housing market got really hammered. So the, the value of her house dropped, and she, she bought this house when the market was at its high, but she, she needed to move. She had no other choice. And so she sold it for a huge loss, basically lost all of her savings. And it was striking what she, she shared with me. She said, there is just this sense of loss. And then for some reason, and she really attributed it to her practice. And like, like you, she had done some long retreats and shorter retreats and was really dedicated to the practice. She said, just there is this simple turn in the mind that made such a huge difference. Where it went from a loss to oh, wow, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to have this quality of generosity. To have this quality of generosity to the young woman who is buying my house. She gets to have such a great deal on this house and she's going to enjoy it. Really small, right? It was just a change in terms of how she was seeing it. But, but I feel that when, when we get this insight into impermanence in our bodies, there can be so much more flexibility, a malleability, so that the mind can move with these changing circumstances. Wouldn't it be cool if we could allow generosity to arise like that, just in small circumstances like that? It makes such a huge difference for ourselves and for the people around us. And this comes from beginning to ride the bike of this insight into impermanence. And I want to point out that she wasn't doing anything to make this happen. Wisdom does its work when we do our work of the practice. Wisdom arises. One of the things that I notice in my own life is that there's a little more flexibility in terms of relating to others and relating to myself, in terms of how we can box others in with concepts and how we can box ourselves in with concepts. One story about this. Some friends of mine have two, two children, and one is, I think, five years old now, and the other one is seven years old. And when we go over to their house, my mind can very easily slip into thinking, oh, that one, the boy, that that one's, he's really shy and kind of withdrawn. But the little girl, she's very extroverted. She likes to to really be out there in what she says and the way she acts. 
And what I realized is that if I hold those concepts about, about them, in some ways they can be useful, in some ways, but if I hold them, I'm boxing them in. I'm boxing them in to have this expectation of how they, they, they behave. And when I do that, I don't see as much what happens outside the box. Have you ever had that experience when people do that to you? How confined it is when we're kept in a box. When you ride the bike of impermanence, there can be this, this intimacy where we really get to meet ourselves and other people in a whole different way, not in the, in the fixed conceptual world. I do want to point out, though, that while we're treading this path, this path towards awakening, even with deep insight, there's, there's still this human experience that we, we experience around um, impermanence, which I, I think is important to name and to speak about a little bit. And I'd like to elucidate it by a, a haiku poem by the poet Isa. And this is a, a haiku that he wrote at the burial of his two-year-old daughter. It was either the fourth or fifth child that he had lost. And, and I think you know the pain of losing a child. It's, it's, it's that, that pain that comes when we lose someone that we expect, expect to go after us, not before us. Which really gives it a, a deeper kind of pain. And on that occasion, he wrote these three lines. The world of dew is only a world of dew. And yet, so again, the world of dew is only a world of dew, and yet, right? The world is just impermanent. Things arise and pass away. And yet, we cry and we're torn by loss. It's, it's the challenge of grief, the pain that can arise from that. And we still need to navigate that in this world and to have that quality of, of presence, of this awareness. And, and in some ways it, it offers a promise. This one, one poem, which I feel offers the promise that we can navigate through grief. This is by David White, called The Well of Grief. He says, those who will not slip beneath, beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Striking, isn't it? Those who are unwilling to slip beneath the still surface of of grief. I think it's such a striking image that we need to slip beneath the surface of it to go into its actually black water. To the source, the source from which we drink. 
And I'm so struck of, of, of what's found. Those small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. It's those gold coins that we begin to, to understand the suffering of others where compassion can truly arise. I just want to end by repeating again just this simple practice and making sure our our awareness or intention stays in the right place, which is really just this simple practice of being aware, being aware of, of what's going on and noticing, having the sensitivity, the willingness to notice how it unfolds. And that's all that's needed to steer to steer us towards awakening. One of my teachers, uh, the Venerable Sokini Rinpoche, I think has a, a beautiful image of this, of what we're doing here. He says, it's, it's kind of like the rudder of a ship. You know, so often when, when we're on this ship of practice, we get, we get so lost in, in making sure that the, paint, the, the, the ship is so nicely painted, or making sure everything on deck is so nice. But, but actually all we're doing is, is we're just simply turning the rudder just a little bit. Actually, it's just a very small turn of the mind, right? A small turning of the mind towards awareness towards this awareness that has intelligence and kindness to it. But it's really slight in the sensitivity to impermanence. Yet if you were to, to start on the California coast and, and, and you were just to have that rudder just change just a little bit, it radically changes the direction, the entire direction that your life is going in. So may our insight into impermanence together lead to the liberation of all beings. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.